Welcome to the latest episode of Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet with your esteemed hosts, Dr. Stacy Adler of the Mono County Office of Education and Mr. Christopher Platt of the Mono County Free Library. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of the Oxygen Starved Podcast, where we bring you adventures, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet. I'm Stacy, And I'm Christopher. And with us, as always, is Doug. Hey, Hi, Doug. Hey. How's it going? A hey, good. This 11,000, can you think of 11,000 feet peaks beside Mammoth Mountain nearby? Because oh, well, I'm, oh, I'm thinking I got to get to 11,000 feet soon to see what it's really like, <laughs> and, uh, and and the only way I could do that is like by taking the the uh, gondola, taking the tram, the gondola yeah. up the mountain, and that wouldn't be legitimate. I need to walk to 11,000 feet. <laughs> <laughs> I Maybe think, I don't. No, I think you should. You know what? And, I'll let's, let's, let, let me propose something, Doug. All right. This summer, when the snows off the mountain and the trails on the mountain are open. I will take the gondola up. I'll bring up a thermos <laughs> of something. And you walk up. I will be there waiting for you with a okay. little re- light refreshment. <laughs> Maybe we'll do we'll do the opener from up there. Okay, that sounds good. <laughs> I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied. You guys hit it. Oh, <laughs> oh we're punch drunk. Can already. I come too? Oh yeah, of course. I'll bring food. I'll oh, bring see, the there food. we go. I'm all yeah, for that. Are you walking up, or you you're, you're bringing the gondola? No, I'm gonna walk. Okay. I'll meet you there. Document it in pictures and post it on the site. We'll, we'll give there you a sled go. and Lola can drag it up. Yeah. Any <laughs> listeners that want to join us, just, you know, message us. We'll, we'll go in a big group. Yes, we will. We will. Uh, what is that? Crowd bombing or whatever it is that people do? Surprise the parties? Dance, we can do a dance when we get to the top. What was that? like? Flash mob. The flash, flash, flash mob. mob. We yeah, will yeah. flash mob the yes. top of Mammoth Mountain. Yes. Hopefully Altera is not listening right now. Oh, God. <laughs> Maybe they'll sponsor us and then we can all have t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> this is getting Okay, we're doing a podcast. Okay, I'm, I'm going away. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye, Doug. Okay. <gasps> and we have so much to, we're we're talking about all of this and we have so much to talk about because of this book that we read um called The 90s by Bye. Chuck Klosterman. We it's just has us all a buzz. I mean, all all week long, we couldn't wait to have this conversation. And you know, we were both youngsters in the nineties. We're not we youngsters anymore. Well, you know, it gave us a chance to kind of relive our twenties, right? Our our wanton wayward twenties. Yes, it was. Re- you know, there were a lot of things as I went as I was reading this book. So, oh yeah, I forgot about that. And some things I didn't even remember. The biodome, to- biosphere two, unpleasant I, things you blocked from your memory. We should did, tell our listeners a little bit about the book. Yes, for sure. So the '90s is a um, kind of a retrospective, if you will, of the decade that was the '90s. Just came out in February by Chuck Klosterman, as yes. you mentioned. Yeah, yes, and he's a he's a pretty well respected writer. He's written for lots of publications and newspapers and things like that. Um, but he, it's not. I wouldn't say this is like a retelling of the '90s. It's more like a a um, kind of a 
meditation on the 90s, right? Yeah. Like, on particular a, things. Because to retelling would, it would take many volumes. This is a 370-page book um, that covers this broad topic, but he right. really tries to capture the zeitgeist of the different levels of the 90s, if that's a way of saying it. Like, by picking out you know, things from different years, like the biosphere <laughs> yes. as a topic of like, okay, let's, let's center you back into 1992 when this was all happening or whenever that was and right. talk about what that meant and, and how we look at that today, 20 years on or 30 years on versus how we experienced at the time for those of us who lived through it. And we should caveat or say that he actually himself contextualizes the 90s as a decade from 1989 when the Berlin Wall fell oh, right. to 2001 when the World Trade Twin, Center, right. the Twin Towers fell. Um, and saying that, that those years in between, which are really like 11 years or whatever, right. <clears throat> is really what defined that as a quote-unquote decade. So that's and he, the, Yeah, uh, and he, yeah. he also goes back and, and kind of contextualizes the decades previous by, you know, saying, well, the 60s really, you know, ended, you know, started when, with the assassination of Kennedy in 63, and it ended, you know, in 1972, you know, with people coming back from Vietnam, or, you know, I can't remember exactly what he says it ended, but he does that for other decades to kind of show what where he's coming from and the book is although it's when it starts out because he does start out talking about the fall of the berlin wall in 89 it is not linear in any means it does not go year to year to year he kind of jumps around kind of based upon is he talking about science is he talking about crime is he talking about and he loves to he i think his favorite topic was like music and entertainment and because that keeps <laughs> he keeps course, circling right? back to that because so. i think like us he's gen x and yes. so you know as a social commentator and a social historian he's he cannot help but look at the 90s through this defining generation x lens of that decade yeah right because he does give um an appropriate number of pages to the famous Douglas Coupland novel, Generation X, that came out in the early 90s. Right. That, you know, then I was in a bookstore at the time. I remember when it came out and we were selling it. And, and you know, at the time it was kind of like, ah, you know, this is kind of like a little trivial book. What is this? It's kind of satire, which I think is how Coupland intended the book and mm-hmm. how Klosterman approaches it. But then of course it then became a label for right. an entire generational movement. And so right. you had the hippies and the yuppies and everyone else. And then you had, you know, the boomers and then you had jet X and we were the well, slackers, it, right? It go, yeah. <laughs> and, and he goes, you know, it's one part towards, towards the end of the book, he talks about, and I don't think we're giving away any spoilers here, no. but it, this book is um, chock full of stuff. He talks about Gen X being the the way that we can, you know, describe Gen X is that of the current non-extinct generations, we are the least igno- annoying. <laughs> I love that comment. <laughs> I loved it. Um, and it, and he's and it, I don't know that he meant it as a compliment. I, um, I don't think he did. <laughs> I don't know that I took it as such. <laughs> Well, he, and he qualified it with a couple of things. We were the smallest generation when you look at us versus the boomers or the millennials that came after and generation Y and Z, we were um, population wise smaller. Um, and then as well, you know, that our kind of 
broadly paintbrushed approach to life was one, a little bit of detachment, right? Mm -hmm. We weren't, you know, there were certainly activists among us, but we weren't pushing things the way, you know, the civil rights movement in the sixties activists were pushing things, right. Or, you know, I forget the exact word he says, but you know, we were kind of detached. We were, it was almost like we wouldn't go out of our way to offer an opinion. You know, it was almost looked down upon at least through that very broad paintbrush Gen X kind of lens. Of course it doesn't apply to everyone, but but it, it was interesting. I mean, you know, and the other thing that we should say for the listeners is he also categorizes that follow the Berlin wall was kind of a very optimistic open-ended time. Mm -hmm. So it kind of led to a period of optimism across the decade. And then of course, nine 11 brought the gates down on that. Right. So that's the other kind of defining thing was, you know, what did this generation, what did this decade do with its optimism? Exactly. Yes. And I I don't know that we've really seen. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now 20 years later, do we look back on it that way? I look back and it's kind of a little more innocent time. What do you think? I, oh no, I definitely think it was more innocent and more, you know, we, there's, look, there wasn't the internet. There wasn't social media. And I I think that kept us all a little bit more, uh, you know, a little more positive, maybe a little, a little less determined to say every single thing that we think. Isn't that interesting? Because, you know, for me, that was a reminder as that statement, you know, that, Mm -hmm. you know, the internet existed, the internet existed from like the eighties and the seventies, but even throughout the nineties, as you know, it developed and people learned to use Netscape and mosaic. And I still remember seeing my first picture downloading on a computer screen in 1995 and the picture was a Seinfeld still from a computer (laughs) in Finland. And we were like, Oh, the world's going to change because now we're talking to people in Finland and sharing Seinfeld photos. And it took like 30 seconds for the photo to load. But you know, it, the internet hadn't impacted our work life. It hadn't impacted our personal life and social media didn't really come around until the late two thousands, which was an interesting reminder for me because Back then, one of the things that stuck out at me here was, you know, now we talk about our phone as this ubiquitous device. We call it a phone, (laughs) but we hardly ever talk telephone on it. You know, it's texting or apping or whatever. That is a really good point. You're right. But back in the 90s, the phone was still something that was largely attached to a wall. Right. And you mostly went home to use it. Yeah. And you you had your little uh, tape recording device and you know you check your messages you check your messages and you had to like stand in your kitchen well for me <laughs> i had to stand in the kitchen to check my because i only had one right you know message machine and yeah, yeah that i you it definitely was the phone was still the phone and, and you still used it right and, and and you didn't have caller id you know you right. could he points out for a few brief years, you could star 69 and find out who was the last person who called who didn't leave yeah. a message. Right. But that was mostly used by teenagers to want to see if their latest crush had called. Yeah. Um, I never, ever used that ever. <laughs> apparently it was developed for stalkers. I didn't know. Um, <laughs> and then the other thing I like that he pointed out around this, cause you pointed out he focused a lot on music and mm-hmm. entertainment is, you know, Napster at the time there was MTV and right. MTV was really big and still showing music videos. Um, but when we went to buy music, 
we bought it on a compact disc, right. mostly, which yep. was, of course, packaged in this gigantic plastic sleeve that was mm-hmm. like impossible to open. <laughs> and when Napster came along and, quote unquote, disrupted the business of music, it actually kind of harkened back to like the 50s when you could buy a single, a 45 single right. record. Right. And you didn't have to buy the whole album. You could right. just buy the song. And Napster brought that back. Like you didn't, you wanted, you know, Metallica's, you know, song that you wanted, you didn't have to go buy the entire album. You can go to Napster and just get the one track right. that you wanted. And so that helped influence the music industry afterwards for bad and for good. But it, right. it, you know, it's kind of one of those shifts that looking back, you're like, wow, yeah, that was a pretty big shift. So looking back and, and the, sh- you know, how perspective changes is really kind of a theme. Yeah throughout this book, right? Yeah. He, he often makes a point of saying, well, this is what it seemed like at the time, but now we look back. And and he also talks a little bit about, he doesn't use the phrase revisionist history, right? but there is a little bit of, of that, you know, in, in the points that he makes. And, you know, one of those, he talks about Kurt Cobain quite a bit. Yeah. And then he juxtaposes that with Tupac. Right. And, you know, both, you know, very impactful artists at the time and how, you know, the, the differences in how those two, the death of each of those artists was viewed at the time versus how that's a little different now, how right. it's viewed differently now. And I thought that was really interesting um, and, and how he wove, like within a chapter, he might start out talking about Tupac and then he gets into, you know, baseball, baseball, and then <laughs> he gets else. into crime and then yeah. science and then to Alanis Morissette or Seinfeld or something. I mean, he, he packs a lot in, you know, t- you don't really know where he's going next. And that's what made it kind of fun to read too. That's that nonlinear aspect that you yeah. refer to. And I enjoyed that as well. It kind of made it, it made it less like a history lesson mm-hmm. and more of like, really, what is he pulling out of this, this comparison of Tupac versus Kurt Cobain, you know? And, and I learned stuff. Like I listened to Tupac Shakur back in the nineties before he was killed, but I didn't realize he came from a well-to-do family in Baltimore. Right. right? I, I had no idea. <clears throat> but that kind of like historical look back on that is really like, now that we've let the sands of time go, you know, really, how do we look at that today? Which is, right. I thought, I thought pretty, pretty fascinating. Um, and, you know, there, I will admit there are parts of this book I skimmed through. I, t- I think mm-hmm. I confessed too. to you, yeah. I skimmed Me through too. the sports. Me too. <laughs> I didn't skim through the sports. I skimmed through like the, some of the, you know, science stuff. Well, you know, that, 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 uh, few pages he devotes to the biosphere that that. experiment. But yeah. yeah, that was kind of like, to me, picking up on that theme of like, this was the optimism of the decade. Um, like we're going to solve all these problems. We're going to be able to put man on Mars by testing it out in this biosphere. And then he reminds us all within a few pages of everything that went wrong. Right. And how personalities get in the middle of it and who owns it now. And like, and did you know, Steve Bannon, the political consultant at one point controlled biosphere? I didn't, you know, I I did did not, but then he, then he, 
what does he talk about right after that or right, you know, right next to that is the MTV show, The Real World. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how, I don't really know how he did his research for this or, or, you know, I can only think in terms of, you know, doing like a mind map of back when I was teaching fifth grade, like, how did he mind map this book? I (laughs) would have no idea. But there, there was one thing that he talked about that I completely disagreed with. What was that? And that was, he talked about the characters of friends, not having an impact on nineties fashion. And he obviously doesn't know anything about fashion. And if he's married, he did not talk to his wife because they absolutely had a huge impact on fashion. And I knew that they did. And I, but it motivated me to do a search, (laughs) a Google search. I did. And I did a Google, did friends, you know, friends impact on fashion and bing, 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 bing. Tons of articles, <laughs> even even as late as like a few years ago, a sure. 2014, which maybe that's not a few, but 2014, there was an article in Vanity Fair about the impact of friends on 90s fashion. So I'm sorry, um, Mr. Klosterman. You should check with me on that first. Well, you know, again, we said he's clearly a Gen X straight male um, yeah. <laughs> probably misses yes. a few of these these nuances. What I liked about the Friends segment was, and he was talking about Seinfeld and other shows yes. as well, mm-hmm. like most right. so-called life that and must, others. Must see TV. That must see TV, and how if we missed it, we would often have to wait until the summer reruns to see the episode that we missed right. if we saw it at all. And yeah. most often, we just never saw the episode. And you know what? That was okay. We're yeah. still alive, you know, and that made me think about today. Yeah. If I miss something, I'm so used to binging series on Netflix now or other mm-hmm. streaming services right. that if I miss an episode, I will go back and watch it later. Cause I can easily. Right. It's yeah. like that whole thing he said about um, movie trailers for the Phantom Menace and how so many people <gasps> yes. went to see meet Joe black. They bought tickets for meet Joe black, a kind of middling movie so that they could sit through the trailer for Phantom Menace and then left. Yeah, I had no idea about that. That I was like, "Oh my god, that's crazy." I had no idea about that. But but he go ahead. Well, I was going to say just on the one last thing on the theme of movies because again, he's looking at it through this lens. So he does spend quite a few pages on the the movie um Oh my gosh, now it's escaping me with Winona Ryder and Ben Stiller and the Reality Ock. Bites. Reality Bites, which came out in the early early 90s as kind yeah. of this generational touchstone movie about the psychology of the Gen X generation in the 90s. And I was like, really? I don't know. I mean, I remember seeing the movie um, and thinking it was like, you know, John Hughes' Pretty in Pink for the Slacker generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if it was a touchstone movie, but to him, apparently it was. Yeah, it's interesting because I only saw that movie because my friend Jim True was in that movie, went to high school (laughs) with him. And so, you know, I wanted to see Jim and it's on the big screen. And, you know, he had a few scenes. He wasn't like a major, major character. But um, yeah, I mean, other than being excited that my friend was in a movie, I didn't think too much else about i mean i didn't see it necessarily as a cultural touchstone but i you know it was 
Yeah, well, to him it was. (laughs) But, you know, talking about movies, he does spend a little bit of time talking about the video rental store. Right. right? And, you know, he, he talks about that with some fondness, you know, and... I was, as I was preparing for this, I was reading a review um, that was in the New York Times of this book. And the reviewer says, he makes a comment about this section. The video rental store was a viscerally depressing pit stop for him, for the reviewer, right? And I was like, oh my, you know, I have such fond memories of going to Blockbuster with well, my, my husband, my boyfriend at the time on Friday nights and Saturday nights. And it was a ritual, you know, I looking, trying to rent a movie and, um, yeah, that was, it was that to me has such fun. I hold such fond memories of, of that time. Because it kept movies as still an event, right? It was something special. You went and you picked it up and you drove it home and you made dinner or popcorn or whatever. And you, as a family or a couple or whatever, you sat and watched it. Right. And then if you were kind, you rewind and you bring it back to the Uh, rental store, you know, and it it turned out in retrospect to be a fairly finite industry, you know, that the the rental store in Bishop, when I was growing up next to the theater is now a wine and yogurt shop. You know, it's, it lasted for a couple of decades and it was really impactful for a couple of decades, but then, you know, 2000s came along, you know, the other thing that we, and again, we're not really giving anything away here. There is so much jam packed in this book. We're barely scratching the surface. The funny thing that he reminded me of, because I was just out of coming in college and coming out of college in the early Mm -hmm. nineties was Zima. Do you remember Zima? Yes, I do. (laughs) Which he Um, writes about mm -hmm. hilariously. Like it was a product of Coors beer. um, Mm -hmm. And basically they just took a lot of the additives out of it and added a lot of sugar. So it was like a, like a souped up Sprite. Yeah. 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 And, and it was clear. And the, the, the key was that it was clear. And then they came up with this whole marketing campaign, including this guy who looked like Richard Lewis, the comedian as a, as a, you know, marketing dude to kind of convince people that Zima was cool and, um, and, you know, tried to make a whole generation adopt it, right? Like you'll be super cool. And they, I remember commercials like, you know, big guys doing barbecues and everyone's drinking Zima. Zima. Like, like, yeah, "Yeah, that's really going to happen. Um, but that leads into this whole thing about like wall street and marketing and what they thought that people would buy because they would think it was healthier. And so then he leads into this other thing, which I will just, I will mention this which cracks me up. Remember crystal Pepsi, which was also clear. It was like the clear version of Pepsi, right? right? That was, that was kind of like a theme of the whole <laughs> nine. Everything had to be clear. Cause it know? was healthier, right? If it looked like right. water, it was good for yes. you. Um, and so, um, you know, Pepsi was kind of positioning this as a, as a, you know, a healthier version of their normal, and all it just didn't have the additives were pulled out of it. Um, and Coca-Cola, which owned tab Cola, which I think many of our grandmothers will remember. Um, they wanted to basically kill off crystal Pepsi and the way that they did it is on purpose. They created tab clear, and they knew Tab was awful to begin with, and that right. Tab Clear would be even more awful. And but they knew that 
by creating Tab Clear, it would get shelved next to Crystal Pepsi in every like corner store and right. gas station right. and supermarket across the country. And by association, it would help Crystal Pepsi tank, which in right. fact it did. It did. And I had no clue. You know, as a consumer, you have no clue about these back end machinations, but apparently right. this is true. He interviews the guy. So um, I just thought that was utterly hilarious because I remember the commercials for all this stuff, you know? I I don't, but <laughs> I I remember I remember the product and I I I never partook of the Zima phenomenon, <laughs> but I had friends that did. Right. And um you know, I think I'm sure I tried it and I think I expected it to taste like Sprite because mm-hmm. that's what it looked like. And <laughs> it, it didn't. It was really bad. Well, yeah, I think <laughs> it died after a few years and then they tried to bring it back a few years ago. They would think there would be this nostalgia for it and that tanked as well. So I don't know. Coors was just off off the mark with that one. Well, you'd, you'd think now with all this kind of resurgence of spark canned wine can sparkling wine and now might be the time now to might be the time to bring it back maybe it was but, it was just way too ahead of its time now everyone's drinking white claw and all this other yeah, stuff that, yeah right right <laughs> but you know he i i what i also appreciated about this is that like a, what we might consider kind of major touchstone events of the 90s like mm-hmm. the whole clinton lewinsky right. thing you know, he, he talks about it, but he doesn't really get into the granular, granular level of mm-hmm. it. You know, he more talks about it and yes, this happened, but, um, you know, and this was kind of the, the cultural of impact right. of it. And, um, you know, I appreciate that cause I didn't really want to hold rehashing of the, you know, the whole Ken star thing. Right. And, you know, I, I, I lived through it. I didn't, need to hear you know read it on a page but um i agree yeah i appreciated that about Uh, him and and i also enjoyed the section on the oj chase right and um i was sharing this with you christopher we had uh dinner at our house this week and we had we had a baby boomer, we had Gen X represented, we had a millennial, and we had a Gen Z at the table. And we were talking about the OJ. And of course, you know, my daughter, the Gen Zer, she she didn't really she just listened because right. she had no idea. But the rest of us, you know, I asked them, do do you remember where you were when you when that happened? And to a person. Everybody remembered exactly where they were when OJ was driving in the backseat, was in the backseat of the Bronco that AC Cowlings drove down the 405. And I thought that was, I was kind of surprised by that. I didn't really believe that to be as seminal a moment as it, it turns out to have been. Well, it's interesting. Uh, uh, because I bet a lot of us do. I certainly remember where I was. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we were, you and I were chatting about it earlier this week, that is that the definition of kind of a cultural or seminal moment of a decade? That touchstone moment is, 
if you can remember where you were, were right. when it happened. And I certainly remember that. And of course, it, you know, we were talking about how it was the proto police chase. Cause now every time there's a slow motion <laughs> right. police chase, there's like five news helicopters and you watch it on the morning news. Um, and you wonder on a day when there isn't one, like what's going on. Um, but to me living in Southern California at the time, for me, what was, I would think more of a kind of a, a more of a social event touchstone of the decade were the Rodney King riots right. in LA. Like that I can remember exactly where I were when I would come home and I would watch those because you couldn't go on the internet at the time and look it up. Like it's like, right. Oh my gosh, what's right. happening today? What's burning today? What's, you know? Um, and it was just such a different world, but the, certainly the OJ thing. And the other point he makes about OJ, and this goes back to an earlier comment we made, is, is about looking at things through the lens of history versus mm-hmm. the moment and how complex and undefinable it is in the moment and how polls about whether he was guilty or not at the time reflected one kind of outcome or one perspective. But now, 20 years later, when you conduct those same polls, the skew of whether people think he was guilty right. or not is different. Right. And that happens in multiple places in this book on multiple issues. Like yes. looking back at it with through time and with patience and without that emotion surrounding it. Right. Well, and the, you know, that's part of that whole Kurt Cobain, Tupac Shakur thing that, right. you know, looking back now, those artists are viewed in different, different, in different ways. ways. But um, I didn't get, I, I definitely got that he was fond of this decade. Right? <laughs> Clearly. Are you but fond of I, it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, there were great things that happened. You know, I had two of my kids in the nineties yeah. I got married in the nineties, you know, yeah. it was, it was, it was a great, a great time. Um, I don't know. How about you? Of course, but part of it for two different reasons, because of course I'm nostalgic. I had a 30 inch waist and hair. So, you know, (laughs) and I was much more fit. So of course, you know, those things you're, you're nostalgic about, right? It's youth for us, for the both of us. For us. Yes, absolutely. Um, But (laughs) you know, one of the quotes that from this book that resonated with me and another reason that makes me fond for the nineties is he says, no stories were viral. No celebrity was trending. The world was still big. The country was still vast. You could still be a little person with your own little life and your own little thoughts. You didn't have to have an opinion and nobody cared if you did or not. Right. Which is today with social media and everything else, yeah. It's so, so different. And that's one of the things I struggle with today as a Gen Xer is why do I have to have an opinion on everything or why do I have to respond to everyone else's opinions and how do I do it without getting my head bit off? You know, it's like, I, just, I, I don't know. I am so happy you just, you, I just like had a total light bulb moment because of what you just said, because I, you know, I have such a complicated relationship with Facebook. Mm-hmm. And, right. and Instagram, you know, I don't post, I don't post like ever. Mm-hmm. I might comment or like something that people say, but I, I always have this feeling when I'm looking at Facebook, which I don't do very often, but when I do of this tremendous anxiety over why does everybody share this stuff? Right. I, why do they think other people care? Right. 
but yeah, I mean, I guess I must on some level because I do look at it, but you know, that was a really profound thing that you just said. Well, I, I'll try to remember what I said. The um, <laughs> well, no, because you know we've you, certainly in our generation. I think a lot of us have this conversation amongst ourselves, mm-hmm. right? And, yeah. and one of our friends a few years ago made a very smart thing is, is as he was exiting Facebook and all that, and he's like, "I'm only going to stay on Instagram, and I'm only going to post positive things," which is something I took to heart. So, you know, I'm on I'm I'm on social media because to me, it's kind of like a magazine. I used to love leafing through magazines, and now I leaf through social media posts on different topics. You know, mm-hmm. um, so I follow a lot of rescue dogs online. That's me. Yeah. Um, and when I post, I always consciously try to post only something positive because it's that bubble effect that we all learned in the last few years. Like I could post political stuff up the wazoo. I'm opinionated, but I'm just shouting into a bubble and ultimately it just brings more anxiety and stress back to me. So why why do that? I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I'm with you. I, I don't, I don't know either. And, um, yeah, that was one thing that's going to make this, you know, decade always be kind of special that it was, the last decade where you had that bubble, right? Where, where, you know, for me as a teacher in the nineties mm-hmm. of, of elementary school age children, you know, I knew that they would, you know, even if they had a bad day at school or if they were f- feeling down about because their best friend got mad at them and they weren't talking to them or whatever, they could go home and they could get away from that. Right. Right. They'd go home to, hopefully what was a safe space, but it was away from a place that was causing them stress. And now kids cannot get away from whatever is going on at school because they come home and it's all over their Instagram or their Snapchat or whatever it is that they're doing at the time. And, um, you know, that for me as an, as an educator and as a mom, that's, that's so hard, you know, that, knowing that, that we don't have that, that protection for them anymore. Right. Like what is their safe mental space? Right. And I, you know, this is a whole nother podcast topic and there are books (laughs) being written on this as well. Let me close this out with a question to you, Stace, and we should remind listeners, we've talked a lot about the, you know, all the different little kind of things that he touches on in this book. He touches on hundreds more. So yes. we're just skimming the surface. Um, and he does so in a way kind of like us, not linear. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, he kind of posits this notion that the 90s are the last definable decade, you know, which we were fond of doing in the 20th century. Oh, there's the yes. 20s and then there was the 30s with yep. the Depression and 50s with Eisenhower and 60s with hippies and civil rights. And 90s is the last definable decade. And everything after 2001 is kind of amorphous. Do you agree? Right in this particular moment, I think I do agree. But check back with me in 10 years because it might be – because I'll have the benefit of – reflection. Right. But definitely in this exact moment. Yeah, I absolutely do. And this, you know, particularly these last few years, we, we say that all the time in this house, how the last two years with the pandemic, right. Everything, you know, everything from March 13th, 2020 until Mm -hmm. about like now, (laughs) right. It's all been one lump. Right. You know, I kind of, what about you? I kind of go back and forth, but I kind of agree with you. And I wonder if it's because of my age, like, you know, the nineties were such an impactful 
time for me as a person, like they were right. for you, they'll always stand out. And if young people today have see more of a nuance in the aughts and the teens than I do. But then I also look at some of the stuff he looked at, the cultural stuff, the TV mm-hmm. shows, and so much of it seems to be a reboot. Like, oh, let's bring back Friends. Let's right. bring back Will and Grace. Let's bring back this. Are there no original ideas? And, and you know, MTV's real world is still happening. You know, it's right. like... <laughs> they brought that back, too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. One of the casts from New Orleans is now back. So I don't know. I, I don't, like you, I don't have that answer. I think yeah. time will tell. But I thought it was an interesting question to kind of pose. Definitely. And listeners, we highly encourage you to check out The 90s by Chuck Klosterman. Just a fascinating read and and reminiscent um, a book of nostalgia about the nineties. And if you do check it out, let us know what you think. Absolutely. We'd really love to know. It's going to be a great book discussion pick. For sure. We could go on. Obviously we could go on and on, but we will not. So sit tight, take a deep breath and we'll be right back. Oxygen, a colorless, odorless reactive gas, the chemical element of atomic number eight and the life supporting component of the air. Starved, suffering a severe and damaging lack of basic material and cultural benefits. Oxygen Starved Podcast, a colorless, odorless, culture-packed, nutritious podcast considering books, describing Mono County adventure, and engaging in informative conversation with colorful Eastside Sierra locals. Download it now. Welcome back, listeners. We are here at our conversation part of our show, and with us today is a dear friend of mine, Mr. David Anderson, Assistant District Attorney for Mono County. Welcome, Dave. Um, Thanks, Stacey. Pleasure to be here. So happy that you took some time to join us from your busy schedule, and we really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So, Dave... Tell us a little bit about how you came to be in Mono County. Uh, Well, we moved up here just about 10 years ago now. Um, My wife and at at the time we had a three-year-old. Now we've got three kids, Um, (laughs) a teenager. That's always fun. Um, And so we were living down south. We were in a little small town uh, called Idlewild, which is a a mountain town outside of Uh Palm Springs. And I worked uh, for a district attorney's office of Riverside in the desert out in Indio. So we, I started, we lived in La Quinta for a couple of years out of law school and then moved up to Idlewild, fell in love with the mountains, but it was a good two and a half hour round trip commute every day from Idlewild to Indio. So uh, at some point we just kind of looked for wanting to live in the mountains, but also being able to work a little bit closer to, to the home. So I, uh, ended up just uh, having a really perfect timing with the prior uh, elected district attorney, George Booth. Mm -hmm. He was retiring and I reached out to Tim Kendall, who I didn't know at the time, but uh, who's the current district attorney and just asked him if there's ever going to be an opening. And he said, actually, the elected (laughs) is retiring in a month and there will be an opening. So I quickly put in my application and I got the job and we moved up and never looked back. Awesome. Did you grow up in the desert, in the desert area or Southern California? Uh, Southern California, yes, but desert, no. I grew up in Huntington Beach. um, So I 
really was not a fan of the desert that was a little too <laughs> too hot. So we 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 lived out there for two two or three years and I mean it's a beautiful area, but yeah. 100, 120 through the summer is pretty brutal. So we uh we actually just had gone up to Idlewild on a weekend just to get out of the heat and ended up loving the area, loving the mountains and found a rental agency that while we were up there and ended up renting a house and leaving the desert. So it was, it was great. Still love that area, but it's, uh, it's nice to be up here in Mammoth. Have you guys ever been here before? Like, you know, I had actually, sorry, I had been, I had been to June more than I'd been to Mammoth. I'd been up here on a few ski trips, Mm -hmm. uh, but my wife had actually never been up here. So she's originally from Seattle and uh, we we met in Santa Barbara, but she had never really skied in Mammoth, so it was it was all new to her. Cool, nice to be up here, and you can go back and visit, you know, the desert anytime you want, right? Oh yeah, no, I <laughs> I appreciate the desert a lot more than I ever thought I would because now <laughs> we we still we'll go down in January or February every year for for a while and visit, and it's perfect. But right. no, I don't go visit in the summer. <laughs> Um, so what was it, what was that transition like for your family moving from the desert up here? It was tough at first. A a lot of it is, you know, as everybody who has moved here from somewhere bigger, I know you were in New York, even (laughs) um, it, it is certainly an adjustment when you, it's, it's not just the mountains or a smaller community, but it's so rural. I mean, we all know the closest Costco is two and a half hours away. <laughs> um, so those kind of adjustments were definitely bigger in the beginning, but now it's to the point, my wife and I were just talking about it. We were down South, uh, maybe a few weeks ago for, uh, to go to Disneyland. And we, every time we go down, it seems harder and harder to deal with you know, traffic and all of it just, I thought it would get easier because you do it less and it's, Oh, this doesn't bother me anymore. But no, that's, it's, it's getting tougher to deal with uh, (laughs) the city and traffic and all of those things. I was just having this conversation with a colleague in the meeting just before this about how even mammoth on a weekend, you know, depending on the time of year feels like a city almost right. The traffic there's, you know, all the locals, we all have our own, like safe times to go shopping at bonds, you know, so you mm-hmm. avoid the lines, right? It's just an adaptation. Of coming it's up the here. first thing you learn. I think when you move up here is when not to go to the market, you know, you, you discover that really quick. Absolutely. It's, you know, it, it's funny cause you know, my three minute commute to work or whatever could turn into <laughs> five and you're just like, this is, this is unacceptable. I, I, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> It's funny how it's all relative, right? Uh, that's exactly. <laughs> that's so true. But I, I totally get what you're saying about it being harder to go. I mean, I've made the drive from here to San Diego more times than I can count. And yet it's, it gets worse every single time, you know, I'm, I'm so excited to get there, but going through that drive is like, uh You can't hit it at a time that's good anymore unless it's maybe two in the morning. But even then you may, if it's on a weekend, you might hit traffic. So there's just no good time to drive anymore. And trucks are always on the road, the big trucks. I think there should be, I'm putting this out there into the universe. There should be a designated time for trucks to be on 395 
and that's the all they can go. That works for me. Or at least, or you, or you could just add another lane. That would also help. That that would, that would help too. But the, only the trucks can stay in that lane. Yeah, that new lane has to only be for trucks. Well, whatever works for everyone. We know we have a lot of truck drivers <laughs> who listen to us as well. And uh, you know, sometimes the wind does that for us, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, the wind will shut down high-profile vehicles on three ninety-five, and they all park in Bishop or Lone Pine or wherever. And, Boy, yeah, it's a challenge sometimes, but it's crazy. all the joy of living up here. So, uh, Dave, what when you moved up here, what what was like the most pleasant surprise for you and and your family, like about living up here versus where you were before, like something unexpected? Um, I, I would say, I would say that one of the this is, oh, I guess, maybe something we were hoping for, but we didn't know if it would happen. Is the work life balance? Um, you know, certainly when I was in Riverside and especially living an hour and a half from my house, mm-hmm. you know, even though my daughter was only three at the time we moved, I was missing all the preschool events. I, you know, I, and I, I saw the writing on the wall that this was going to be the future of, it's going to be hard to coach your kids teams. It's going to be hard to get to the plays. Um, especially because we didn't want to move back to the desert. So I knew I would be <laughs> farther away. Um, so being so close and having such a an awesome community that is supportive uh, of family, of uh, community involvement, all of those things uh, that we really would we really wanted. I mean, I, we both we both grew up in large cities, but I think at at heart we were much more of a, a small town type people that really appreciated the uh, small town nature that that Mono County has. That's wonderful. And so was was there a similar shift in what you saw for, you know, for your job? You know, did, did the, like the level of intensity change when you went from the city to up here? Absolutely. Uh, And at first it actually wasn't a, (laughs) some of it was, I guess, not um, as welcomed because you know, I had, I had, I had really been a DA for five years. So I was relatively mm-hmm. young in my career. I had in Riverside, I was on the gang homicide, uh, major crimes unit. I had a paid, you know, at the time we had pagers, still cell phones hadn't worked <laughs> too well, I guess, in some areas. So we had pagers <laughs> for call outs for homicides, which occurred more frequently than they should, but there was a level of excitement with, not knowing what's happening the next day, what, you know, whether there's going to be a new case you're picking up, uh, the, the excitement of, of some serious cases in court, uh, that we were dealing with. And then I came here and, and I had, I hadn't seen a misdemeanor case in years. And pretty much all I had here were DUIs from people who got drunk on vacation. So it, (laughs) it, it, it was not, at first that satisfying to, and I knew that was going to uh-huh. happen. That wasn't a surprise, but it was a bit of, I don't want to say a, a step backwards, but it traditionally would be looked like as a step backwards in your career. When you went from high level crimes to what you do when you start off as a, as a prosecutor. So that was a little bit of an adjustment. It took probably a couple of years to really uh, adjust to the pace because I was used to never having one free second in a case, let alone being able to work up a case as much as I wanted because I had mm-hmm. what felt like all the time in the world. Um, once I got used to that, it you know, there's no going back to be able to properly right. 
do a case the way that you should be able to not just triage something and be able to give our victims the the time that they need and make sure that we're always doing the right thing. Right. So is there, is there a, a trade-off at all in that, that, yeah, you have more time, but you know, do you, do you have the same level of resources? I mean, does a, a, you know, that you would have in a, in a big, you know, urban setting? Absolutely not. Uh, not even close. <laughs> we, uh, it, it is, that is a major adjustment too, because, uh, again, in Riverside, we had, I believe 200, 200, 200 to 250 attorneys, uh, throughout the County total, the office was about a thousand people. So you can, our office here is 10 people, four attorneys. So you've completely changed the dynamics as far as, um, I guess, availability of resources. Mm-hmm. I've many times been typing up my own transcripts because we don't have, you know, we, we had a transcription department that would do all of our transcripts in Riverside. We had a complete uh, exhibit uh, program that would be able to, you know, you, you would give them a slide of something and they would blow it up into whatever you wanted. It was anything you needed for court would magically show up on my desk after I asked, uh, put in a request. Now it's a lot of this stuff is still outsourced, but it's a lot more difficult because we don't have contracts with people. We don't have, we have to find them ourselves or we do it ourselves. So, um, I, in some regards, uh, still, we, we certainly have more time than I would have had down there, even with that Mm -hmm. support. But yes, there is a lot of things that I certainly didn't learn how to do in law school, like cutting and pasting different exhibits and doing things. That, <laughs> there's, there's not an arts and crafts class. There is not. But... I, I think I'm going to probably, my daughter's very artistic. So I think I might start roping her into slave labor. <laughs> <laughs> DA work in a rural frontier County. Listen, Dave, let's actually let, let's baseline this conversation because we have mentioned, you know, your role in the County um, and we've now kind of, you know, moved into kind of what your work life is like. What tell our listeners, like, really, what is your title? What is your role and purpose in Mono County? And really, what is the kind of like the day in the life apart from, you know, handling misdemeanors? I mean, you know, what do you do in a county as a as assistant DA? Sure. Uh, yeah. So in a district attorney's office, generally speaking, depending on how big the office is, you'll have deputy district attorneys who are what you're considered the frontline prosecutors. They're the ones who are often in court trying cases, um, pleading cases out, doing all that. You'll There's many different levels. There can be chiefs, um, chief deputies, all these different things. Here, we just have <laughs> deputy DAs, assistant DA, and then the elected district attorney. So when I moved up here, I was a deputy DA. Uh, the assistant DA moved, actually, ironically, went to Riverside County and became a <laughs> DA down there. Yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, who has come back since and now is a deputy DA again here. So <laughs> he, he didn't, you know. Learned his lesson. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but so when he left, I moved up t- uh, to the assistant position. And that's what I'm currently, uh, that's currently my position. So as an assistant DA... In a large county, you're going to be completely administrative. You're going to be a supervisor that's just basically dealing with the board of supervisors and a lot of the day-to-day operations of a DA's office. In a small county like this, 
I do both. I'll do the uh, administrative managerial tasks, but then I also still have a caseload and I'm dealing generally with the more serious felonies that the county has. So um, my last trial was uh, a murder trial from the, the, there was a Vaughn's shooting many people are familiar with. We don't thankfully have many murders here, so they're few and far between, but that was uh, several months ago. So there, there still are some trial and uh, courtroom duties that I take care of on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, some of what you said is reminding me, Stace, of one of our earliest guests on this podcast was Sheriff Braun, and she pointed out because she had come from SoCal as well, and you know, she pointed out that you know the kind of crime that happens up here is just it's, it's at different levels than in an urban or suburban environment. You know, the bad guys still come up here, but they're on vacation. So to your point of, you know, a lot of people getting drunk and stuff like that, you know, that she much, she referenced that as well. I thought that was very interesting and very apropos. Yes. We, unfortunately, more recently, we've had some more violent crime. A lot of it does not actually have to do with Mono County residents. We do have a very major interstate that runs right through the county in 395. Right. And what happens on 395 is is our deal, even if it is from somewhere far beyond here. Um, so we have had some uh, a string really of of uh, serious violent crime in the last several years. But I, I think it's more of just just randomly happened, um, as opposed to, you know, necessarily a endemic problem to Mono County. Um, but in general, our crimes are different. We do have a lot more low level crime. We certainly don't have gangs, uh, which is something that is a major problem for most communities. Uh, we did laugh. There was several years ago, there was actually a couple of uh, guys who attempted to form a gang because they wanted to have this gang activity. But legally speaking, you have to have three people in order to have a gang and they could not <laughs> apparently find a third person. So they couldn't even qualify as a gang if they wanted to. I love that. So that's a good problem to have. <laughs> so given, given the nature of the, as you just illustrated, the smallness of our community, when you, when you have a, a big case and you're trying to seat a jury, is it, is it difficult to do because you, because you, these are your neighbors, these are, you know, people, you know, how does that all work? That is a problem in every case. The every, I mean, it's amazing. I had my first trial. Uh, it was just a DUI trial, I believe a few months after I got up here and I didn't know hardly anyone. And, uh, you know, I, I'd done so many trials in a large environment where nobody ever knew each other. There was maybe one or two trials where a juror would say, Oh, I know John sitting over there. And they, they were immediately gone because, well, you know, somebody, And so when I see the first jury panel and everybody's talking to each other, everyone knows each other, uh, the judge Eller was the judge presiding on there and everyone knew Stan. So it was Stan talking to the jurors, oh, how are your kids? And I'm thinking, where am I? And how does any of this even work if everybody knows everybody? And in, in in a sense, you just have to understand that that's going to happen. There's no possible way that we're ever going to see 12 people that don't know each other. And for the most part, I've, I've actually 
I've never seen an incident that arose because somebody knew each other. Now, if you know the, if you know the victim or, you know, the defendant and you have a close relationship with them, that's not going to work. Right. But for the most part, people will say, Oh, I've, I've seen that person at Vons or I've, I I know their mom or something like that. Mm -hmm. But as long as they can answer that they can be fair and impartial, that that's not a problem. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and, because I've thought about that too. And I've also thought about it from the lens of actually being a juror. And Stace, I think you and I have chatted mm-hmm. about this as well. One of the uh, things I learned moving back here after living in New York for so long, where I got a jury summons once every seven years, um, was that you get, it's not uncommon to get it almost every year here because the population mm-hmm. is so small. The jury pool is so small. And I was like, really? Um, but it, yeah, I guess it's just a factor of, of living in a rural county with a small population. It is. And, and we handle our jury service differently than a large county. If you've ever served in a large county, you might go on a Monday to a large room. Mm-hmm. There's no courtroom there. You're just sitting in a jury room and they call out some names and they dismiss everybody else at the end of the day. And that's pretty much your, your service. Uh, that's because nobody knows what trial is going to go. They don't know how many trials and they just have a constant supply of jurors coming in to be filled to whatever's available uh, in those courtrooms here. You're only subpoenaed for uh, a, or summonsed for a specific trial. So -hmm. if that trial gets canceled, you might get a call. It says, don't even come because that trial is off, but otherwise, you know, you're going on a case because that there is a specific case that you've been Mm -hmm. summonsed for. Well, it's, you know, I've always thought it's a, it's uh, a learning experience. It's not just a civic duty that I think we should all be doing, but it's, it's people can learn from going through these things. So mm-hmm. I encourage people when you get your notice, <laughs> say yes, if you can make it happen, you know, don't always defer. I try not to, but then I, I hardly ever get picked. Maybe I'll get picked more in Stace now that we're out here. I'll, I'll pick you next time. <laughs> <laughs> or they'll hear, you know, we're on oxygen star and they're like, Oh, never get those guys. Um, <laughs> so we talk a lot about what you do, you know, on your day job, you know, what do you guys like to do when you're not working? There's, we're here in the Eastern Sierra. What, what's a typical thing that you guys like to do? Um, I mean, typical snow sports, uh, uh, loves snowboarding. That was one of the, one of the main draws, of course, just like most people to coming up here, being able to, uh, I snowboarded a lot when I lived down South and it was a big draw, of course, to come up here and, and be able to do it on my lunch break mm-hmm. as with a lot of people too. It seems the more, the longer you live here, the less you end up getting to be able to do these things. Uh, <laughs> 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 sure ironic. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I think I've only got up three or four times this last year, but partially because I kept, we were down South during the storms in December, part of the storm in December. And I kept thinking, I'll just wait for the next storm. And well, we're still waiting for that one. So. <laughs> um, but the, as far as, again, this is very typical of people who live here, but the summer is, our favorite season now. And, uh, I'm glad we're getting into that now. We -hmm. love camping. We have a trailer. We go out, uh, at least try to get out for two, three or four weeks a a year. A lot of it just local for weekends. And then we'll try to do a bigger trip in the summer. So that's uh, big. And, and right now it's just, I coach my son in uh, little league and in AYSO and I'm on the boards of those. And there's just a lot of, uh, 
sports going on all, all year round. So, and you you think do you think you've achieved that work life balance being here now? And you know, it's so much more important now with kids, right? For sure. This you know, the kids are only young once. You don't want to miss that and look back and regret things. So this is uh, it's perfect. There's obviously times where work is, is always going to, you know, if you're in a trial or something is pressing, you're going to, you're going to be doing that 100%. But the, the great aspect of it is when you have a break or there isn't something so pressing, you do have those ability to go to practices or, or do things with your kids that, uh, a lot of times you can't do in, in bigger counties. And do the kids, are they, are they like hike good hikers in the summer or do they like the mount, the snow sports better? Um, they love that. I would say they love both. They, they love, um, skiing and they also love hiking. So it's, it's okay. kind of, I mean, I guess it's great because they're when they're ready for the next season when it comes. So, and we just got a, a puppy right around Christmas. Wow. He was now, you know, at the age where he's always out. So we're going to get a lot of hiking in this summer. I'm sure with him, keep him from eating shoes and all of Yes. yes that's it's, important. It sounds like your job right now is just to keep up, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> to some extent that is true. You know, we, it's amazing. And we've talked about this, that, and of course, one of the, one of the great, things of COVID or probably the only great thing of COVID was that ability to just kind of slow down and, and appreciate yeah. time with the family really when you had no other choice to to do anything. And, you know, we had always talked about, let's make sure we remember this and not get so busy again, which has completely gone out the window, but it's, <laughs> it is nice to, to be in a small town where you're not spending as much time on the road, at least when you're going between all of these different events um, until of course you have tournaments places, and then you have to go to Carson city for everything. So. <laughs> That's when you remember you really live in a remote yes. area. <laughs> but you know, the good thing about that is then you get to go to, you know, you get to go to Costco and, and Trader <laughs> Joe's and do all those things. So it does take care of that. For sure. Yeah, yeah you, it's so. worth the trip. Almost well, maybe not with gas now, but in general, mm-hmm. it's almost worth it for the amount that you save by going up there. So that's right. You know, I don't. I love just talking to people who've moved here into the Eastern Sierra since I moved back. Um, who very often say, like, you know, we used to vacation up here as kids. We would go hiking, we would go fishing or skiing or what have you, and those memories made such an indelible impression on them that they that they ended up living here. And I so I think I always think that kids who live here really just have it. I know they appreciate it. They, they really have it really great compared to many people who only ever get to visit. Absolutely. And it's amazing how many of people, adults now you see who grew up here as kids who left, you know, maybe they wanted to the second they could get out and spent years somewhere else and then end up here. Because when you really start to think about it, you're, you realize how good you had it. Absolutely. Exhibit yeah. A right here. <laughs> just just even what you shared, Dave, about not having to spend so much time on the road driving places makes it it improves the quality of your life so much. Absolutely. I think. So. <laughs> I'm glad you agree. You're always right, Stace. <laughs> well, <laughs> Better be careful when you say that. (laughs) 
We'll edit that out. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yes, we will. Thank you. <laughs> Strike that from the record. So, Dave, tell us, we always ask our guests what you are reading now. What are you reading now, Dave? Um, I'm reading a couple books. I, I, it's This is going to sound cliche, but I, I pretty much... Uh, John Grisham comes out with a new book every year, at least. And I've read his books since I was a kid. So I I pretty much will read all of his when they come out. So one of his newer ones is called uh, Suli. And it's actually not a uh, courtroom drama, which is fun to to see him switch it up. And it's uh, it's about a a South Sudan basketball player who Mm -hmm. had the opportunity to come up to the United States and play in a basketball tournament. And uh, just as a, to showcase his talent. He's not going to be one of the the best players, but ends up, uh, trying to get a college scholarship and things happen at home with his family that, that are pretty tragic, but it's so far, I'm about halfway through it. So it's, it's been a good read and it's a nice switch from mm-hmm. some of the more cookie cutter courtroom type stuff that, that he's certainly known for and does a good job at. Can I ask you a question? Do you, yes. you you say you've read him pretty much since you were a kid, which is aging me? Um, is, was he an inspiration for you in career wise? Um, I, I certainly, you know, I don't know if I was reading him and think, and, and that actually gave me the idea of of wanting to go into law school. I know that I always wanted to be a prosecutor from college age or so. Uh, I, I really actually early on in high school, I wanted to be a doctor and I got a C in AP bio and <laughs> had no idea what I was doing in it and said, this, I'm not doing anything science related. So, <laughs> um, that pushed me over towards uh, a different career path. I, I I've always enjoyed the law or always enjoyed the, the courtroom drama aspect of it. So I would imagine that that even though I've never really thought about it that way, I, I would imagine there is certainly some influence there. Hmm. I, I love when Grisham deviates from the procedural courtroom. One of my favorite books of his is playing for pizza. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I just love that book. And I, I won't rest until I go to Parma, Italy and <laughs> check it out. But um, I, I like when he does something different. You know, I I read all of his books too when I was a kid and, or a little older than a kid. But let's be real. Um, his first book was in the eighties, so it's it has been a long a long career. Okay, so we were kind of kids, yeah. Christopher. We were kids in the eighties. I will take that after the book that we just discussed. I will take that, Stacey. So I know. Yeah, I know. You, it's true. <laughs> I'm looking at my gray beard right now thinking, oh, my gosh. (laughs) Well, that's great. Um, What's the other book you're reading right now? Oh, I just started it, um, Moneyball by uh, Michael Lewis. I'm a big sports guy, so that whole – I mean, it's it's really – it's been around now for – obviously, the book's been around, and and the concept of uh, statistics and sports in general, but certainly in baseball, has not a new concept – much because of this book, but it's amazing how you look at everything is just is stat driven. Now you've got the exit velocity of a ball. You've got, uh, you know, your, your angles, your launch angles from where it's been hit and everything is even players who are practicing now it's they're wearing sensors on their body Mm -hmm. when they're throwing. So everything is 
almost robotic to a, to a sense where, you know, it used to just be, you go throw a ball and if you do it well, you you're fine. Now it's, it's much more complicated and technical than that. So. So does this book focus on all, like how the role that statistics plays in all sports or is it just baseball? Like the, cause the movie was based on this book, correct? Correct. Uh, yeah. It's based, it's baseball. So it's Billy okay. Bean, who's the general right. manager of the A's. Um, it was, they were, they had the lowest, and if you've seen the movie or read the yeah. book, you'll get the concept of course, but basically for anyone who hasn't, they had the lowest payroll in baseball for several years. And yet they were always consistently the top, uh, team in the AL West and always made the playoffs with no payroll. And right. it came down to, um, a, st- a statistician and Billy Bean really diving into this, uh, what at the time was not heavily used analytics into developing, you know, maybe the best player that you look at who has the most physical gifts isn't really going to win you the pennant. It, it's going to be a little right. bit more complicated than that. And what's interesting is people have, are, all the teams are after this now, but the A's mm-hmm. still, even to this day, have done it better than most of the other teams when you just look at a pure getting money, getting your bang for your buck. I think that's kind of why the Chicago Cubs won the World Series when they did, because I think Theo Epstein is kind of a big person in this Moneyball yep. situation, and and Joe Madden and, buys into it too. So yes. it was, yeah, yeah. And then my Cubbies won the World Series. Yay! <laughs> you know, Michael Lewis is one of those authors. He's been around for a, a pretty almost as long as John Grisham, I think. Um, and he, every few years, he comes out with a lot of books, but every few years he really comes out with like this game changer book. His first one, I think the big one was Liar's Poker about Wall Street and Moneyball came out about 20 years ago and is still talked about today. I listened to another podcast called Smartlist and they had him on as a guest to talk about recent work, but they spent the whole podcast talking about this book Moneyball. So a lot of people are still reading about this whole look at the Oakland A's and how, how, you know, it can be interpreted. Um, and he's gone on to write other great books as well. Like the fifth risk is his most recent one is, a, is about the pandemic that came out last year. Um, but boy, Moneyball is a core Canon title still. Yeah, so far so good. I mean, I've, I've, I never saw the movie, so it was, it was, I mean, I know the stories just from being a fan of baseball, but I had yeah. never read the book. So getting around to it finally. The movie's good. Well, I'll have to add the movie Brad to my Pitt. list. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we all know why Stacey watched the Um No, that was an unfair comment. We should edit that out. <laughs> it's okay. It's fair. It's fair. I, I think, you know, our, our female listeners might agree with me. <laughs> so that's Moneyball by Michael Lewis and Suli, one of the most recent from John Grisham, which is a bestseller and is getting a lot of great reviews. We encourage both both the readers to read to read both those books. We have them in the library. Of course, you can find them at bookstores and elsewhere. Listen, Dave, thank you for joining us. This has Thanks, been a great Dave. conversation. Thanks for having me. It's fun. We appreciate it. It's always great to get a different voice. A unique, the, the Eastern Sierra, it's small. We talked about how rural and small a population is, but there are so many unique and interesting voices out there. And Dave is one of them. And we have so many unique and interesting listeners. Thank you guys for joining us for another episode of the Oxygen Starved Podcast. Remember, you can find us at our website, oxygenstarvedpodcast.com, where you can email us or listen to episodes. The episodes, of course, are on all major podcast platforms. And we encourage you to follow us on Instagram and Facebook 
O2Starved is our handle. And let us know what you think of these episodes or the titles that we talk about or what you love about the Eastern Sierra. And until the next episode in a couple of weeks, have a great, great spring from Stacy and Doug and I. Thanks for joining us here for Oxygen Star. Our outro music, Iron Bacon, is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod. In Competech.com, Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license.